this is not an unexpected event. And yet we did nothing to prepare in any meaningful way. And our leadership, in my view, failed us. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. How can it be that with all the advances of science and medicine, the U.S. is fighting a virus with the old-fashioned tools of isolation and face masks? How and when will the COVID-19 pandemic end, and what will be the lasting impact? Nicholas Christakis tackles these issues in his latest book, Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. Christakis, who lives in Norwich, Vermont, is a physician and sociologist. He is Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University. Nicholas Christakis, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me, David. Modern science and medicine have given us great power to understand the nature of the coronavirus that we're facing, but it doesn't seem like we've done a whole lot better than our uh, forebears in uh, stopping it. The kind of things that we're doing, banning public gatherings, lockdowns, wearing masks, kind of seems like a very much a last century approach um, to dealing with a plague. So um, you and you note that in 1918, in the Spanish flu, citizens were actually more responsive to public health measures than we are now. What explains why we are at the place we are at dealing with a modern plague with what seems like some very old tools? Well, I mean, one perspective on this is that primitive threats called for call for primitive measures. Um, plagues have been a part of the human experience for thousands of years. And all of the stuff that we're doing now, you know, the physical distancing, the, the, the slowing down of the economy, the, um, you know, this sort of unnatural and even alien way we seem to be living, these, these things are not new to our species. They're just new to us. We think that this is so outrageous and this is so odd, but actually human beings have for thousands of years been confronting these, you know, contagious outbreaks and responding, as you're saying, largely in a similar way. Um, so on the one hand, I would say that this is a deep and fundamental threat. You know, plague is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We're familiar with it. And we are responding in a familiar way. On the other hand, you're right. You would think in the 21st century of the United States, we would do better. And um, certainly we have something that never was existing before, which is vaccines. You know, and until in the, very recently in our history as a species, we didn't have access to that. Um, and, you know, we have drugs and effective drugs. I mean, a long time ago, they thought they had drugs. They would rub you with snakes or, you know, toads or onions or whatever they thought would be effective. But we do have some different things and we have modern communications. So, yes, I would think we could do better. But, but fundamentally, it's an ancient threat. So around the world, we're looking at a situation as of today, 55 million people infected, over a million who've died. Compare this current plague to past ones. Well, um, focusing just on the United States, we have about 230,000 Americans that we know of have died of the condition so far. If you include the people that we are 
that died as a result of this pathogen, but that we don't know of that they were diagnosed with it using something known as the excess death method. So you look at how many people have died, you know, the last nine months compared to the last five years in this nine month period. And you see that maybe 300,000 Americans probably have died. We've had 300,000 excess deaths. So COVID has increased the mortality in our society. Uh, and I think in the end, at least half a million Americans will die, perhaps as many as a million actually. And uh, by the end, I mean, by the time this multiple waves of this epidemic have washed over us. Um, and if you then set that number aside for just a moment, and then you, you um, quantify a couple of basic parameters about the virus itself, one parameter is how deadly is the virus, the lethality of the virus. And this can be quantified using something known as the infection fatality rate, which is what fraction of the people who are infected with the virus will die. And that number we know quite reliably now is between 0.5 and 0.8%, which is pretty high actually, that's the bad germ. Um, and of the people who get symptoms, since you've got to double the number, in other words, half the people don't have symptoms, half do have symptoms. So the so-called case fatality rate's about double that. So about 1% of the people who get symptoms of COVID will die. And it, of course, varies by age as well, as most people are aware of now. Anyway, let's say 1%. And then if you also look at how infectious the disease is, how easy does it spread, which is another intrinsic parameter of the pathogen, of the virus, um, we see that the so-called r naught, their basic reproduction number of the virus is a, between two and a half and three and a half, let's say three for the sake of argument. So each case intrinsically can cause three new cases in a non-immune population of humans that's interacting normally. If you take these two parameters, how infectious is, is the disease and how deadly is the disease, and you look at all the respiratory pandemics for the last hundred years and you plot them on a, curve, on a graph with these two axes, deadliness and infectiousness, in the upper right, the most deadly, the worst one was the 1918 pandemic. And previously, the second worst one was the 1957 influenza pandemic. And then down here, not very deadly, not so infectious is the 2009 H1N1 pandemic that many listeners will remember. Or if they don't remember, it's because it didn't kill many people. It was like the common cold, so people don't remember it. The coronavirus COVID-2019 will be the second worst we've had in 100 years. It'll be up high. It's and In, in terms of the number killed. Both, for sure, in terms of the number killed, but it's it's particular combination of in, of transmissibility and lethality make it the second worst, and it will ultimately wind up killing, on a per capita basis, more than any other pandemic except the 1918 pandemic in our country. Of course, in 1918, our country was much smaller, so you don't look at the absolute deaths; you look at the proportion uh, that were killed. So, yes, so it's serious. You you've been tracking this since the first reports coming out of China of a strange, potentially deadly new virus that you were hearing uh, back in December 2019. And then in January, more uh, was coming out about this. And you, uh, I understand, repurposed your, or redirected your lab at Yale to focus on this. So here we are, November. Um, are you surprised at how badly we're doing here in the US? Yes, yes, I'm ashamed. Um, of how badly we have done. I mean, on January the 24th, the, uh, the Chinese deemed this virus as sufficiently powerful adversary 
that they basically detonated a social nuclear weapon in order to stop it. They put 930 million people under home confinement all the way through April. So the Chinese didn't mess around with this virus. And what were we thinking when we saw this happening in China on January the 24th? Why, why would anyone not think that the virus would come to us? Of, co of course it would come to us. And then even if we had not taken paid attention when this happened in China, in February, Italy was brought to its knees, Lombardy. What, what were we thinking then? And of course, inexorably, the virus came to us and we should have been preparing. Beginning, beginning in January, our country should have been preparing testing capacity, been preparing PPE, ventilators, uh, getting our hospital and healthcare systems organized. Most importantly, I think in some ways, we should have been preparing the American people for the challenge ahead in dealing with a very serious calamity that was about to befall us with plain speaking was, would have been required to say, look, this virus is going to come. We wish it wouldn't come. God knows I wish it wouldn't have come, uh, but it is. And, um, and you know, Tony Fauci was, was writing about this stuff when I was in elementary school. I mean, uh, this is, uh, you know, you, the CDC releases every few years, they release a, a document called, you know, pandemic preparedness plan for the United States. I mean, this is not, an unexpected event. Uh, and yet we did nothing uh, to prepare in any meaningful way. And our leadership, um, in my view, failed us. Now, you could argue that other European leaders also did poorly, you know, in England or in Italy, for example, but many countries did remarkably well. Taiwan, South Korea, New Zealand, Greece, uh, these countries did well. So why did we not? And from here, I, I, you know, I'm disappointed. I mean, we, we are the richest country in the world. We spend 17.7% of our GDP on healthcare. We have the National Security Agency had warned the president in December. Just to correct something you said, I, I did not know this was going to be a pandemic or I wasn't persuaded until the end of January. And then I knew. But, um, but we now know that, but, but I, but but, you know, the president should have known before me, you know, like, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a surprising you know, thing. And we now know that, in fact, the NSA was calling this, the CIA was calling this, the CDC was gravely concerned. Um, so we had, uh, we have the world's, you know, elite scientists, we have the CDC, we have all these resources at our disposal, money, knowledge, um, power, and yet we didn't do any use those resources. So I'm, you know, and we are in a mess. And I, you know, I'm, I'm very upset about this. Now, Vermont, in our little neck of the woods, we've done reasonably well. Um, thank goodness. And it's, it's, I think, partly because we're a rural state, partly because I think we have very civic minded and, you know, we're sort of people are, are doing their part, you know, they're wearing masks, they're obeying the rules by and large. I think, I think we've had capable leadership in, uh, in Governor Scott. Uh, I mean, I, I would have been even more aggressive than he's been, but honestly, he's been pretty aggressive. What um, would you, what would you have done more aggressively? I would have done stuff, everything he's done, but a bit sooner. You know, I think he's, um, you know, he's, um, you know, he's also being guided by other constraints. You know, I mean, I suppose it's easy for me to Monday night quarterback and say, well, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'll only focus on the public health aspects. And of course he has more things to worry about, but, but, you know, I think we we're doing reasonably well in Vermont, but we have limited hospital capacity in Vermont. We can't afford to be like North Dakota and South Dakota right now. I mean, North Dakota has the highest per capita. It's either North or South. I'm pretty sure it's North. Dakota. North. Yeah. Yeah. has the highest per capita death rate in the world. It's um, astonishing. It's astonishing. I mean, it's just utterly irresponsible, frankly. And the so, governor only called for mandatory masking yesterday. 
I don't, it's not even mandatory. There's so many loopholes in that. It's ridiculous. The, 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 the thing he's, uh, you know, suggesting. So, you know, I, I don't think, um, and the thing that people have to understand is, is that if we take some basic steps and we all work together, we can avoid, there, there's no way to avoid all hardship right now. There's no way to avoid all death and all poverty. The virus is going to harm us. It, it's just what these viruses do. Uh, and they have done our, our species, you know, our human beings have endured these types of epidemics for, for centuries. And, uh, and we're not going to be spared. Uh, the virus is, you know, having what is known as an ecological release. It's just, it's, it's finding, you know, it's like a living thing that has found a new terrain, namely our bodies. And it's just going to, you know, go about its business and, and uh, have a field day with us. And that's what it's doing. Uh, so we can't avoid all of the, all of the suffering, unfortunately. Uh, but we can take some prudent steps to mitigate it. And so, for example, if we want to keep our schools open or, or, or minimize the harm to our economy, well, then we have to wear masks and we have to keep physical distancing. And we, you know, unfortunately, we have to limit our Thanksgiving, um, you know, parties, uh, you know, meals and so on. We, ha we, have to, we have to do something. We can't have our cake and eat it too. And so we're, we're, before we get too carried away patting ourselves on the back in Vermont, we are now experiencing yes. a surge. We are experiencing some exponential growth. Um, where do you see this going in Vermont? Well, this is why I think we have to, unfortunately, step back a bit more quickly. The thing about exponential growth is, is it's, 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 it's deceptive, right? As we all learned in high school math, you know, it's, it's, there's a long flat part of the curve and then it inflects and then it skyrockets. And there's this long, long period of time where it looks like nothing is happening. And unfortunately, that's when you have to take action, when it looks like nothing is happening. Because by the time something is happening, it's too late. So, you know, I actually would strongly encourage listeners to, to, um, to do their part, you know, to, to uh, minimize, you know, consolidate your shopping trips, you know, keep a list, go out once a week, once every other week, if you can, but that thins out our grocery stores. So they're less densely packed. Uh, avoid any unnecessary travel. Uh, don't cross state lines if you can help it. Uh, wear your mask, keep physical distancing, uh, you know, self-isolate if you're sick, get testing. You know, we, we could do better with testing, actually, I think in our state, it's very difficult to get rapid test results, which I think is is really is too bad. You know, I, I don't, I haven't gotten to the bottom of it. I don't quite know why we're having a hard time uh, doing this well um, with testing in our state, but yes. So all of these things are things we need to do. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're speaking with uh, Professor Nicholas Christakis. He's a professor at Yale and the author of a new book, Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. We were talking about leadership or lack of it in this country and where it has put us. Of course, we do have leadership, but it is at the moment not Anthony Fauci, who's a renowned expert on infectious diseases. It is a radiologist, um, by, a man by the name of Scott Atlas, who is Trump's top COVID advisor now, and he has advocated herd immunity. Uh, and that, uh, well, why don't you explain what herd immunity is and uh, say a little bit about what you think of this approach? Well, herd immunity is the idea that the a population of people or animals can be immune to an epidemic, even if not every individual within that population is immune. So for example, if we vaccinate 96% of the population for measles, 
even if one of the 4% unvaccinated people were to get infected, they wouldn't interact with anyone on average to whom they could transmit the disease. So we would not get any measles outbreaks. The measles would just stop cold. We wouldn't get an epidemic. The percentage that you need to vaccinate to get to that herd immunity benefit varies by the infectiousness of the germ. So the intuition is that the more infectious the germ, and measles is, I think, the most infectious disease known, the one that transmits the easiest, it has an R naught, an R sub zero of about 16 or 18 new cases for each original case. You have to vaccinate very high fraction of the population, like 96%. Conversely, if it's a very non-transmissible disease, like seasonal flu, for example, which might have an R naught of about 1.5, that means for each case you get one and a half new cases, that's a very smoldering, slow-growing epidemic, you don't need to vaccinate that many people to stop an epidemic from breaking out. That's why, for example, we regularly in this country only have 30% of adults get, I'm making up the number, I don't know the precise number right now, let's say 30% of adults get vaccinated for, um, for seasonal flu, but that's enough to stop an epidemic. The R naught of, um, of coronavirus is, we said earlier, is let's say about three, it's between two and a half and three and a half. And the, and the formula you use to compute the fraction of people is a formula R naught minus one divided by R naught. So three minus one is two divided by three is 66%. So the target threshold that we need to reach is 66% of the public has, if, 60, if we get to 66% of the public getting infected, at that point, the virus finds it very hard to keep spreading. Turns out actually that number needs to be downwardly revised for a very technical reason that I love because it's network science, that's why my laboratory studies, but it brings the number down from 66% to let's say between 40 and 50%, let's say 45%. So ultimately- You're saying only 40 to 50% of people need to be immune to get herd immunity. Yes. You need to have been infected and acquired natural immunity in order to get herd immunity. Is herd immunity a viable public health solution for no, dealing with COVID? I wouldn't, I wouldn't deliberately set it. I mean, in the olden days, this was the natural end of an epidemic was herd immunity, you know, before we had vaccines and, and medicines, but that's not where we're living. We're living in the 21st century. And so to, to deliberately set out to achieve the herd immunity threshold is, I think, <coughs> naturally, because you can also release it achieve it with vaccination. As, we, as we've seen now, we're rapidly inventing vaccines. We're gonna have several vaccines that I think are approved in 2021. And if we get immunity artificially by vaccinating half the population, now that's a fantastic outcome because we avoid the deaths from the disease, but now we've stopped the epidemic. That's of course what we're hoping to achieve. So, um, but of course that it'll take time to do that not only to invent the vaccine, but also to manufacture it, distribute it, and persuade the public to take it. Meanwhile, the virus is spreading. Probably right now, about 12% of Americans have been infected. And as we were just saying, perhaps 45% need to be infected before we reach herd immunity naturally. So we're about a fourth of the way there. So, so we're not at the, at, the, at the beginning of the end of this pandemic. We're just barely at the end of the beginning. And it's going to but we'll get there one way or the other. So, so, but because we have the path of vaccination, deliberately trying to get to the herd immunity threshold seems foolish to me. I think we should try to continue to engage in the physical distancing and other so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions until such time as we can vaccinate enough of the people so that we preserve lives, stand up our economy and, um, and, um, and, and not you know, get sick basically. 
You spent uh, much of your career as a physician, as a hospice doctor, and that's a setting where you worked hard to ensure that people were accompanied by loved ones in their last days. With COVID-19, people are routinely dying alone. What does that do to the dying and also to the living? Yeah, I'm, I'm really appalled by this. I mean, it, and very saddened and I may even say almost enraged by it. Uh, people have died alone in times of plague for thousands of years, partly because they were abandoned and people were afraid to get sick or because everyone in their family had died, you know, during bubonic plague, you know, everyone else who died, you'd be the last one to die and you'd be all alone in your house with rotting bodies, you know, just awful, awful history of this. Well, when this happened in our country, I couldn't believe it in back in March in New York City. And it, it happened for a number of reasons. The hospitals were inundated. The personnel did not have time to, you know, welcome loved ones in. There wasn't enough PPE to uh, protect loved ones from getting sick from the decedent or from others in the hospital or prevent them from spreading the disease, right? We have an infection, we have an epidemic. We don't want random people coming into the hospital. And the healthcare personnel really couldn't be spared for the bring the loved one carefully to the bedside and so on, the kind of stuff that we do when people are sick in our modern hospitals or in any hospital, frankly. And as a result, all of these things were swept aside. And as a, as a person who was a hospice doctor for many years, I stopped seeing patients about 10 years ago, we would move heaven and earth to make sure people didn't die alone. I mean, it was, it was seen as an appalling dereliction of, of our obligations if people died alone. So when I was reading these accounts in March in our country, I couldn't believe it, that this is what was happening. And I was very upset that we had not provided, you know, we hadn't flattened the curve enough so that our doctors and nurses weren't overwhelmed. We didn't have adequate PPE or testing. So loved ones coming to the hospital could be tested to see are they infected and if not could be allowed in or given PPE. We didn't have special rooms, isolation rooms. I mean, we weren't tooled up for this. And as a result, people were saying goodbye to their loved ones by FaceTime, which is ridiculous. And look at what's happening. It's gonna happen again now. And I, and I don't think it should, honestly. I think that uh, when you die, I think your family should be there. I think that's crucially important for them and for you. And I think that we should arrange our healthcare system so as to provide for that eventuality. And I believe with adequate resources it's, and planning, it's absolutely possible and it's essential. You so think I, it can be done where, in a way where people are not infected? Yes, of course. You can give the loved ones PPE and they can come in and see the, their loved one and they can you know, hold their hand and then wash their hands afterwards and all of that. That's exactly right. Yes. Yes. I think that's exactly what should happen. You write that truth is a casualty of plague. And uh, right now, uh, the U.S. is awash in conspiracy theories put forth by Donald Trump, amplified on Fox News and by his many followers we're saying that COVID is a hoax and that it's a political plot by the Democrats and the Chinese. Why is a pandemic such fertile ground for lies and conspiracies? Well, one of the interesting things about this is that this is not the first plague that has featured lies and denial. And, um, you know, I think um, for thousands of years, you know, if you think of plague as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, mendacity is its squire, you know, following right behind. And so, you know, germs spread through social networks and right behind the germs are our lies, you know, charlatans selling snake oil and 
leaders who deny what's happening and people with superstitions and conspiracy theories. And in fact, lies are so omnipresent during times of plague, you might even say that the presence of lying is required for you to think of something as being a plague. Um, I think it's partly very human. People don't want to believe this unpleasant reality. And of course, there will be leaders who will gladly satiate the desire of a public that doesn't want to believe the truth. But to me, that's a failure of leadership. I don't, I don't think you get a pass. If you say, oh, I lied to the people because that's what they wanted, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's not, you're not fulfilling your duty. Uh, and so, you know, I think I expect more from leaders in our country. I expect them to level with us. I know sometimes it's difficult for politicians to do that. I certainly expect the scientists to level with us. And here's where I think getting information from scientists for the average citizen may be a bit easier than getting information from the average politician. We uh, Can I say one more thing about that? Sure. In a way, it's um, almost a reflection of the perfection of our democracy that we, are, we can put into power people who lie to us. Because if the public wants to be lied to, they will elect liars. And it's only because our democracy works so well that we are able to get exactly what we want. And some would say we deserve. Um, so I think we too have a duty, you know, the average citizen has a duty to wish to be told the truth and to take the responsibility seriously. You know, we are being called, in my view, to sacrifice and to action and to maturity. You know, it's a childlike way of seeing the world to think, you know, I could just pretend that this thing is not there. You know, one of the metaphors I gave recently, because I, I um, unfortunately, I've not had the best luck with root canals in my life, is, you know, if, if you're in the dental chair and uh, you know, you've had one or two root canals and you kind of have had enough and you don't want any more, your denying that you need more root canals doesn't change the reality of your predicament. You know, it just, you need them. And, uh, and so, you know, it's just not mature of us to, to say, oh, well, you know, we have COVID fatigue. We don't want to do this anymore. Well, I'm sorry. You know, I mean, this is the uh, situation we're in. I'm right there with you on not wanting any more root canals, by the way. So <laughs> I'm a wonderful dentist in Hanover. Who's, uh, who's it, it, it looks to me, um, you know, the, the moment we are in right now is that it looks to me that our president is walking away from COVID for the remaining yes. 60 days of his term. Yes. What do you think the consequences of 60 days of Awful. no leadership on COVID Awful. are going to be? Awful, 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 awful. We're losing a thousand people a day. It'll keep going up as a nation. I mean, it'll be patchy. Some parts of the country will do better than others. And you know, I think there are a variety of political calculations in indifference. I don't know whether this man really ever wanted this job or certainly he hasn't, in my view, done this job in an effective way when it comes to pandemic control. I mean, he has implemented other policies that many citizens like, I mean, let's, we're a divided nation, 70 million people voted for him. Um, and so he's done many things that many citizens liked and people hold their nose and vote for politicians all the time. So I understand that's the system we have, but I think on the narrow issue of pandemic management, I, I, I think I can give him an F, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's been awful. And it's, uh, you know, as I said at the beginning, you know, I, I'm ashamed of how poorly our great nation has done. Oh, and I don't know if I finished saying what I was going to say earlier, which is some people have said, well, other wealthy democracies did poorly. I don't remember if I said this already. Other wealthy democracies did poorly as well, like Italy, for example, or the United Kingdom. And yet, as we noted, other countries did well, you know, like 
New Zealand and Taiwan and Korea and even Greece and so on. But um, but I have more I have higher expectations for us. We're the United States of America, you know. Like I don't think we should, you know, we should just throw our hands up and say, oh well, you know, we're just gonna, you know, do an awful job of pandemic response. No, I think we can and should have done a better job. The subtitle of your book, Apollo's Arrow, is the profound and enduring impact of coronavirus on the way we live. So tell me, what do you see as the profound and enduring impact? Well, I, I, I discuss many of the ways that this will leave its mark on us. And I'm not sure it would make for interesting listening for me to just quickly rat-a-tat-tat enumerate them. But I, I will highlight as just as a toy example, uh, a, you know, something that just is an illustrative example, which is uh, at the turn of the last century, tuberculosis epidemics were a serious problem in our society and, and, and public uh, spitting was rightly seen as an unsanitary. And there were a lot of moves to like get people to stop spitting. And in those days there were spittoons and, you know, all these public venues like restaurants, for example, and then when the 1918 Spanish influenza struck, the spittoons were eliminated. They left all the restaurants. Nobody, there was no spittoons anywhere anymore. And then, and now there are no spittoons in any restaurants. Like, I don't think I've ever gone into a restaurant in my life where there has been a spittoon and nobody misses the spittoons or even perhaps inquires. Like my children are saying, where is the place to spit? There's just no spittoons. They're gone. The society was permanently changed, you know, because of the pandemic. And there will be many examples of things like that, that our society will change um, in ways that uh, 50 years from now, people won't, will take for granted. Uh, so there are quite a number of things like that that are likely to happen in my view. So looking in your crystal ball, how and when does this pandemic end? Well, the pandemic will have both a biological end and a social end. And in, in, in Apollo's Arrow, I talk a little bit about the three phases. The first phase we've already discussed, which is the immediate pandemic period, which is, I think will go till 2022, when either we will reach herd immunity naturally or we will do it through vaccination. And, um, and I think that demarcates the end of the biological and epidemiological shock of the uh, pandemic. And then we're gonna enter the intermediate period, which is, the time it will take for us to recover from the social, psychological, and economic shock. I mean, the economy is not going to instantly bounce back. People are not going to suddenly go back to restaurants or airports or all these businesses that have gone out of business aren't going to instantly, you know, stand back up on their feet. It'll take us some time. So until the 2022, I think we're going to have intermittent school closures. We're going to be wearing masks. We're going to have to do physical distancing. Restaurants will be at 50% capacity. Like all of the stuff, testing, you know, will be a part of it. All of the stuff that we're doing is going to be a part of our lives. Then around 2022, some of that will end, but we'll still have the social and psychological and economic responses. And I think sometime in 2024, judging from previous pandemics, we'll finally begin to be put those behind us as well. And the post-pandemic period will, um, will start. And I think a lot of the changes in personal attitudes that are typical of plagues that are taking place even now. So during times of plagues, people get more religious they get more abstemious, they save money, they avoid risk. Um, you know, I think all of that will be reversed. And we'll, just like the 1918 pandemic, we'll have a kind of roaring 20s when uh, people will relentlessly seek out social interactions, you know, uh, nightclubs and bars and restaurants and political rallies and sporting events. And they'll start spending liberally again. And, uh, 
and there'll be a joie de vivre and a kind of a risk taking. And one reviewer of my book read this description and goes, you know, here's hoping, you know, that we'll have this incredible, you know, sort of efflorescence in our society. And I, I suspect, you know, the timing is approximate on all of these things, but I think something like that is likely to happen. Well, I think, uh, you know, people are hearing daily now about the new vaccines being developed. And I, I think people are imagining a much shorter time frame than you're describing. No, that's not realistic. Uh, you know, we first of all, we we will have vaccines in 2021, but even the announcements that have been made so far relate to the efficacy of the vaccine. We still don't know the safety of the vaccine. Even if the vaccine is approved, it still needs to be manufactured, distributed, and accepted, which will take time. We also don't know whether the vaccine will affect mortality. You know, it may just prevent you from getting sick, but not prevent you from dying. And we don't know if the vaccine will stop infectiousness. It may stop you from getting sick, but not stop you from transmitting the virus. There may be safety problems that emerge as we roll it out over to millions of people. All of these things are still unknown. So it's all of that's gonna take time. So there's no quick out uh, for this. And incidentally, the speed with which we're developing a vaccine is astonishing anyway. Like it, it's, 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 it is in fact a quick out compared to other pandemics. It's just not as quick as people fantasize, uh, unfortunately. Right. Um, I want to ask about the challenge of writing this book in the middle of the pandemic. It's kind of like writing about the World Series when you're, you only get to watch till game three. What well, was like? It's like that, but you've watched all prior World Series and you know the teams intimately and you know how World Series go. So... So you had history on your side. Well, I've spent my life studying these topics. So, you know, uh, when I started writing the book in the middle of March and I worked every day for four months in a row, I worked every day and uh, delivered it to the editor in the middle of July. And then it had to be edited and then printed and designed and manufactured. And that took a couple of months. And, and now here it is. Uh, here is the book. And finally, uh, just a question on uh, uh, you and your wife are both uh, professors at Yale, but you live in Norwich, Vermont. How does that work? Well, Erica is no longer a professor at Yale. Uh, she is a writer and uh, was for many years was an elementary school teacher. And we're raising, um, our, we've raised our children here in Vermont. And, uh, and I um, run a laboratory at Yale and I commute to New Haven in the middle of the week. And actually during the pandemic, I, I haven't had to do that commute. So it, you know, I, it's not hard for us to live where we live. It's, it's a straight shot, three hours down Route 91. I get to New Haven. I spend a couple of nights there and I come back up. Okay. Well, Nicholas Christakis, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me, David. Nicholas Christakis is a professor of social and natural science at Yale. His latest book is Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.